Donald Prothero is a geologist, paleontologist, and the author of over 50 books on science, skepticism, and evolution. This is Donald Prothero. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. Uh, I'm here with uh, Donald Prothero. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so you are a geologist, paleontologist, author, skeptic. Is that a, a fair job description? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't get paid to be a skeptic, but I get paid for the other things, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so normally when I've had guests on in the past, they'll have written a book or maybe two, and we can kind of walk through step-by-step uh, step you know, those individual books. But you've written, uh, I think, over 30 at this point. Actually, uh, next year it'll be 50. So <laughs> so technically yeah. correct, it was over 30, but yes. Yeah, quite a bit over 30, yeah. Um, so if, if it's all right with you, I have questions from a few of your books uh, uh, that a few of your books raised for me that I'd like to ask. Um, and hopefully we can just make this conversational and um, see where these questions lead us. Sound sure. Go good ahead. to you? Cool. Yep. Um, one perhaps an interesting place to start off with, speaking of skepticism, um, you co-authored a book called Abominable Science. Um, mm -hmm. And in it, you talk about uh, these, these mythical creatures like the Yeti, the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, professor, why are you trying so hard to debunk Bigfoot? Well, it's a big problem in this country and across the world as well, but it's certainly in this country, which is supposedly so well-educated and so well-invested uh, you know, in education and especially in, you know, so committed to uh, science and science and technology as a way of better life, that we still have so much anti-science and pseudoscience and especially just plain old garbage out there that people believe. And uh, as a very active member of the Skeptic Society and also one who takes my job seriously, uh, I felt, you know, this is something we could really use. It's something which is really debunking a lot of these garbage claims from the view of a scientist who's properly trained to analyze, especially the claims of cryptozoology, which largely go into the realm of paleontology and anthropology and geology, all of which I'm trained in professionally. So I felt that unlike the other books out there, and there are not very many of them actually, just a few books out there debunking this or that particular uh, cryptid, like a Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster, uh, Daniel Loxton, who's been spent his whole life reading about this material and started as a believer in the whole thing until he became a skeptic, um, both felt that we could do a better job of a book that would really uh, debunk the entire thing as a, as a whole, as well as talk about individual claims like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. So first chapter of that book is entirely mine and it's all about the scientific method and the rules of evidence and what you need to accept something and of course the famous claim that was made by Carl Sagan extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and the was well de detailed in the book all the way through the evidence is not extraordinary in fact it's mostly evidence of hoaxes and people who were misled by all sorts of simple things so it was really clear to us that this kind of thing had to be put out in a, a clear form and also just trying to show how gullible society is people like these things want to believe in them even if there's no evidence uh, of them and as much too much evidence of, of fraud and hoaxes all the way through the process and I've heard you talk before in the past about uh, this sort of near universe, like a cultural universal belief in monsters uh, and, and needing this deep need to believe in things that are unexplainable or mysterious. Uh, is there some evolutionary advantage to that or where does it come from? 
Well, I think humans have always wanted to have some kind of explanation for things they didn't understand. And in, uh, in, our, in our prehistoric past, it was a mythology of one kind or another that gave a framework or an explanation for things. Uh, but then, you know, other, other things come along and the scientific method and the fact that we have so many uh, you know, modern observations which show things which we used to believe in mythologically, like the Earth is the center of the universe and, and that we're, you know, we're going, where the sun's going around us and you know, the Earth is flat, all these things that used to be common sense beliefs turn out not to be true thanks to our discoveries from science. Well, the same goes for things like uh, there's a creature like Bigfoot out there or a creature like Nosex Monster. The evidence is just as, as well uh, developed in science for that as it is for things like the earth is round or that the earth goes around the sun. Unfortunately, most people accept those former claims. They don't necessarily accept the latter. And as I said in the book, and you've heard me mention, um, I think you can attribute a lot of these uh, paranormal ideas, well, not just Bigfoot and this Loch Ness Monster, uh, but also things like UFOs. Uh, if you look at the culture of the late 1800s or before, uh, you don't see them talking about Bigfoot. There's no real claims of any of those things about the beginning of the 20th century. And the only thing that explains a lot of it is, uh, in the case of UFOs, they birth to science fiction. Science fiction basically replaces re religious iconon. Also, people see religious visions. Instead, they see UFOs or something like that in the case of UFOs and aliens. In the case of Bigfoot, I mean, you know, every culture has always had monsters as part of their lore, part of the explanation of what the world is like or as something to be uh, fascinated with. And when science debunks almost all those mythical monsters, people come up with things like Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster instead. In other words, those things are culturally ingrained. They're part of our psyche. We just don't seem to be comfortable living in a scientific world that doesn't have UFOs and Bigfoots and monsters. That's something people seem to have the need to believe in, especially as religion has declined as an important factor in people's belief systems mm -hmm. in much of the world. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned there the, the that the earth is round, of course, but I'm sure you're aware of the fact that recently there have there's been what maybe began ironically, but has become serious, a flat earth movement. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I wrote a whole book on that last year. So <laughs> I didn't know you hadn't seen that book. Hang on. It's over here. Let's see. Uh, stretch away from my laptop here. Yes. Just came out last year. Uh, and I don't know how well it will do with the Zoom screen. It's called Weird, Weird earth. earth. And then the subtitle is Debunking Strange Ideas About the Planet. And uh, so the, the cover art is very nice. It looks like a round earth. And then if you take the dust jacket off underneath it, the actual original cover of the book is a flat earth with the <laughs> rain, uh, water pouring off the edge. So the cover designer did a very clever thing with that cover. Although most people won't see it because the dust jackets tend to get lost or they take them off when they have libraries. But anyway, um, uh, yes, I wrote a whole book on that topic, including a whole chapter on flat earthism, where it comes from, what motivates it, and, and uh, going over the details of how the whole thing is, uh, is, is working. And in particular, what I do with many of the chapters there, so I have a chapter on flat earthism, hollow earthers, you know, geocentrists, uh, uh, you know, the, the people who claim the earth is expanding. There's a whole spectrum of weird ideas out there, some more widely held than others. Uh, but what they all have in common is basically a, a, a a lack of basic science education and the, the evidence of science. Too often people learn science in elementary school as a bunch of facts to be memorized and never learn any evidence for why people understand the earth or anything else in the scientific method. And that's unfortunately probably the nature of education at that level is very hard to teach kids about geophysics. 
But, you know, when I teach at college level, I insist when I talk about as many of the topics as I cover in my classes, I always try, if I have the option to do so, if I have a bit of time to spare, to give them the evidence for why scientists say the Earth is round and why scientists say the Earth goes around the sun. And so each of the chapters in that book have, um, and at the end, you know, a complete uh, sort of discussion of that evidence and why scientists ex accept this explanation and not the flat earth or the hollow earth or whatever. And that's important because it is only because we're so ignorant about science and especially most people in America are ignorant about the earth in particular, because they almost never get exposed to earth science in almost any part of their education, that it's valuable to actually go over the evidence of why scientists think the way they do. I'm curious, when you talk about the lack of scientific literacy, I see that sometimes even from people who claim like during uh, this pandemic, I see a lot of people saying like, I believe the science. And that strikes me as being kind of a, a confusing way of putting it because science is right. not some Bible of, of things that are right. true. There's a lot of debate going on. D does that? Well, it's a shorthand for saying I accept that modern medicine knows what it's doing. Sure. Okay? Yeah. And what's unfortunately been the case, thanks to now political politicians country, it's become a badge of honor in a certain political party to be anti-science and anti-medicine. Uh, they've gotten so distrustful of institutions like science and medicine that they're actively promoting conspiracy theories about what COVID is about and taking all sorts of quack medical cures, including the president himself at one time and all this other stuff, which has just been terrible because of course the death toll in this country is way higher than it should have been for a country as well educated and as scientifically advanced and medically advanced as we are. But because so much uh, vaccine denial is out there now, we're watching, especially red states, mostly older white Republicans are the ones who are dying most often, which is sort of cruel, cruel sort of ironic Darwinian twist, the whole thing. Uh, I'm curious when, um, and sort of the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about the uh, abominable science, um, have you heard about the recent stories about UFOs with uh, the sort of the, the U.S. Navy releasing yep. Um, yep. footage? Same story. It's, a, it's just another version of the same thing. Point is, UFO stands for unidentified flying object. Does not imply necessarily that it's some kind of extraterrestrial and non-understood crap. It's just something we do not know at the time the observation is made what it is. Okay, and people immediately do. It's just like everything else and religion, and everything else. They like to have an explanation. They jump to a conclusion. They jump to whatever makes it feel comfortable rather than accept uncertainty, which science is very comfortable with. Science embraces uncertainty. We say, if we don't know the answer now, we're not going to put a, a temporary solution in place like God did it. We're going to wait until the evidence continues to emerge. And if the evidence emerges, it explains it so much the better. That usually what happens eventually. If it still isn't explained, it doesn't mean it's unexplainable. But the UFO cults and the uh, and the people who believe in Bigfoot, they they don't see an explanation for them that to satisfy them because science hasn't told them why this particular phenomenon occurred. Therefore, they make the jump, the, the illogical jump to some supernatural or paranormal being like a UFO or an alien or Bigfoot. And so that's the problem we have with these things. Well, these data, for example, from recent things are just like all the older sightings. We don't know for sure what they are. But there's several rules of thumb you have to remember on UFOs. First of all, most UFOs have been explained and no longer unidentified. The vast majority of the ones cited over the Western US have all been traced back to the top secret flights of various types of spy craft, like the SR-71 Blackbird and the U-2 and all the rest. They were flying out of Area 51 over the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, that's all been tracked down because planes, of course, traveled at Mach 3, 
90,000 feet, almost twice as high as an airline pilot flies. So naturally they look really mysterious to an airline pilot. So most UFOs actually are no longer unidentified. The, the records in the Air Force have now pretty much tracked most of them down. But even if it's not been tracked down yet, a scientist cannot say, I don't know, therefore Bigfoot, or I don't know, right. therefore aliens. Okay, that's an unacceptable pattern for scientists. We don't jump to conclusions. We wait till the evidence finally emerges. And we may never get explanation of everything, but the point being, we don't know what those were, or at least we don't know for sure what those were. Quite a few people think they've found out what it was. But the point is that it gets great publicity. It's great for the media, but it's all basically unidentified. It doesn't mean anything now. Okay. Yes. And speaking of things that do have some explanation, um, you, you've written uh, another book, The Story of Life and 25 Fossils. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, some of these fossils you're talking about, and you, you talk about more uh, in, in another book of yours, Evolution. Um, they, they're, these animals are so bizarre. I mean, they're mm -hmm. these massive land mammals, uh, weird looking turtles, uh, sea creatures yeah. that were also huge. Uh, has has life gotten like less weird uh, over the course of time? Well, I mean, one thing that has happened in the last 10,000 years, we lost most of the biggest mammals that used to be here, like saber-toothed tigers and mammoths and things like that. And that's a whole story into itself, why that may or may have happened. There's not a simple answer to that story either. But uh, so the world does not have nearly as much a diversity of big things, especially. Uh, and there's certainly part of that's to blame for humans. Humans certainly killed off a lot of the more interesting and bizarre species that were alive when they encountered them. But we're looking at you know, 65 million years since the end of the age of dinosaurs and even longer that mammals have been around. And mammals have done lots of cool things. It just happens most of them are not around now. Right. We're looking at one time frame that we're in now and judging, well, everything else looks like it's so weird. But if you have enough time, enough places in the world, enough opportunity, things will evolve that are very strange. And there are still plenty of things that are strange around us now. They're just not gigantic. Uh, they're mostly smaller things. But the, if you pay any attention to the naturalistic programs, all these weird things that we have living with today are not any less weird. They're just not gigantic. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious on that point when you say that perhaps uh, humans are responsible for a lot of these large mammals dying out. Uh, it, do you do you think there's something like, um, you know, you, you know, every species is different from each other. But do you think there's something like differently different about human beings compared to other animals? Or is that just a source of, you know, human arrogance? Well, we have, of course, the most intelligent uh, brains of anything alive today, possibly exception of dolphins and some other whales. Uh, but of course, we're adapted for one kind of living. Whales' intelligence is designed for something completely different. So they don't think like we do, and they would never have any reason to. Uh, we have other advantages physically, like uh, by, you know, a grasping hand and a few other products. And then especially as anthropologists point out over and over again, once we develop societies, once we develop cooperation, uh, when, you know, we develop the use of tools, all these things, we have very many things that almost no other animal has, except now a few animals do develop tools. And all those things have given us the advantage of not only be able to mostly conquer much of nature, but of course become giant plague on the planet that's now destroying it. So uh, yes, we have some advantages and yes, we are distinct from all the nature in that regard. I don't regard that as some kind of supernatural or, or you know, philosophical break or anything. It's just that we are more extreme in a few handful of characteristics, but that doesn't make us better in the most other respects, right? We're not a better swimmer than a dolphin. We're not a better runner than an ostrich. You know, we don't do any of those things nearly as well as some of our specialized animals do. And speaking of, of the evolution of humans, you, you talk in that book about the Lucy 
fossil. Um, and I was curious, I, I was in India uh, fairly recently, and a guy asked me, who was very skeptical of evolution, um, you know, if we came from monkeys, then why are monkeys still around? And I, I yep. kind of gave an answer, but I, I feel like you could articulate it much better. Yeah. That's based on an old notion about nature that is a big ladder of creation or a, a uh, you know, step, a step up the scale of scale in nature or the scala natura in Latin. That notion died with Charles Darwin in 1859. We now understand life is not a series of things that replace each other or that classic march of the hominids through time. We see one human followed by another, followed by another, all progressing toward modern humans. Life is bushy and branching with multiple lineages coexisting at the same time. So apes and humans branched off around seven, eight million years ago. They coexist so they're all the rest of the time there and they're still around. We did not descend from a chimpanzee. We have a common ancestor with the chimpanzee with seven million years ago, slightly older. And uh, the analogy I like to use for my students when I talk about this is your own history, you have a family tree, not a family line, right? And you had, uh, you know, when you were born, presumably your father didn't die instantaneously. You overlapped in time with your dad and you might be even overlapped in time with your grandfather, right? So they branch off before you and they overlap in time with you. And likewise, the same with human species and with the great apes, they've all branched off at different times in that common family tree. And they all, most of them persist overlapping through time for a long time. So there are multiple species of apes and humans on the planet at any given time, including now. And so let's talk about that, that common ancestor. How, how does that branching occur? I mean, maybe, we, you know, do, do we know, was it like a certain mutation or that some got? Uh, that we, yeah, we, had, we can identify certain small mutations that differentiate us from our nearest relative, the chimpanzee. We have the oldest known human fossil, which is almost seven million years old, a thing called Sahelanthropus, or two minds, its nickname, which comes from Chad in Central Africa. Uh, and that's the oldest specimen we have that's unquestionably a member of the hominid lineage. But if you look at it closely, very little of it is, is modern human. Most of it is ape-like, except it does have upright posture because we have the skull so we can see where the spinal column goes straight below it. And it has a few other features that are human-like, but most by far, extremely, the uh, rest of it is extremely similar to common ancestors or chimps, which is what you would expect. You know, there's slight differences between it and a human. I see. So if I was explaining it to um, that fellow um, that, that I was mentioning, mm -hmm. it, it's not as though, uh, you know, some some of these common ape ancestors just decided one day we're going to leave the trees and start no, walking no, no, on no. the ground. No, the common ancestors with us and apes, they they split as species do. And some species stayed where they were, which the chimpanzees stayed in the forests. And we were thought to have moved into open grassland savannas. One of our, one of the ideas, scenarios, or why we changed as we did, and especially why we stopped being such a tree climbing creature and more of a ground creature. And uh, those are ideas, but whatever that uh, holds up there, the point is branching. It's not a march of time. And unfortunately, the icon of evolution most often is that humans uh, marching in line. Right. That is a completely false image, which, of course, makes everyone think that that's true. But it's not. It's just a false old idea from before 1859. And, and speaking of which, why there used to be a lot of different uh, species of hominid. Why did they all die out? Do we know? No, we don't know. Um, at one time, around set point, 2 million to about 1.8 million, there are four of them side by side in the same beds in East Africa. So they're, but they're different in quite a bit of ways. So the ones that are paranthropines are really robust with big nutcracking jaws and might have had a different diet and different kinds of habits uh, than some of the more gracile things, which are uh, things like Australopithecus or 
uh, one of the earliest members of Homo, which also coexist around that same time in the same place. So it turns out humans are speciose, just like virtually every other animal on the planet, right? At any given time, most lineage of animals have multiple species coexisting at the same time and often in the same place. And then some die out and some don't. And in most cases, we cannot tell you exactly why. And that's just something we have to live with. Uh, and, and you talk about in that book and also in uh, evolution, these uh, transitional fossils, uh, sometimes called, uh, you know, quote unquote, missing links, uh, right. which I know is a term you don't like. Um, so on, on that note, then, why can we still sort of believe in this? Um, wh wh why do these, uh, the absence of certain fossils in the record, um, you know, blow any holes in the theory of evolution, let's say? Well, the, the point is we don't use missing links because links implies a chain, which implies a linear sequence. And that's no longer the, the right way to describe life. Yeah. Life is branching and bushing. So you, the word missing link is just as obsolete as the concept of marching the humans through time, right? There is no single line of anything. Everything is a branching, bushy pattern, okay? And then the big point is then if you look at the fossil record for any particular group of animals, and the one of the things I did a lot of in that evolution book and in some other books as well, is show just how many fossils we have from all these various branches of any family tree, not just the human family tree, but the horse family tree or the elephant family tree or the rhino family tree. I've put a lot of those examples in the books I've written. It doesn't matter which group you look at. We have tons and tons and tons of fossils on almost every branch, but we never expect the fossil record to be 100% complete. And we never expect every gap to be filled. But if you, uh, if you take a, a, a set of words, you know, it's like to be or not to be, and just knock out a few letters, you can see the pattern without having every letter there, okay? It's not necessary to have every single piece of the puzzle to know what the pattern is. And that's why it the fossil record. We can see enough of the pieces of the puzzle, given what we're working something that's mostly incomplete, to know that it still shows the, the, the evidence of evolution and how it occurred. And it's common, for example, in debate with creationists, I didn't do this in my debates, but I've heard this happen, where you, know, you show them a transitional, you show them fossil A and fossil B, and then you show them a fossil in between the two, Instead of admitting that you've just proven your point, they say, well, what about the ones between that one and that one? In other words, the minute you put a new fossil in, you create two more gaps in their mind, mm -hmm. and therefore you have to keep producing more evidence. And that's completely a false way to argue. Right? In other words, you did what was required. You put something in between the two extremes and show there's the transitional fossil, and then they just demand you show more transitional fossils, which means they're basically playing games. They're not, they're not serious in their arguments. When you're when, when you have debated, say, creationists in the past, do you get a sense from them that they are purely grifters or that they truly believe in these things? Most of the ones I've dealt with directly clearly are biblical literalists. So to believe they're damned to hell, they don't believe every word of the Bible literally. So I don't think they're uh, at least the rank and file people are mostly just fundamentalists who follow fundamentalist churches. Um, there are some leaders among them who are clearly grifters. Like Kent Hovind, who had a ministry for a long time in Florida and called himself Dr. Dino, although he has no doctorate. He doesn't know a thing about dinosaurs, but he uses dinosaurs as a cudgel to beat up an evolution and tells false things about them. He's been in federal prison now for about 15 years for tax evasion. He's a grifter. Uh, there are a bunch of other ministers who mostly are fundamentalists as well. Uh, majority of them are, who are also been shown to be grifters, and most of them, many of them have gone to prison, or they've been disgraced and then amazingly come back, to, back like Jim Vacker, who's now back in the, back in the news again, and back into 
drifting more generations of people who follow the same colony through the first time. Or even Peter Popoff, who was the famous uh, grifter who was caught by James Randi using a radio receiver earpiece to hear from his, his wife, who was broadcasting information on prayer cards that they had gotten there and using the supposed supernatural knowledge to grift people in his faith healing services. So, yes, the leaders of these, these churches, many of them are clearly, well, they're clearly milking their flock for money. That's their main goal. Uh, maybe they believe what they're doing or not, it's, it's hard to know. That's the, uh, that's the Elmer Gantry problem. But um, the whole thing about it is that they are often ministries which are very fundamentalist, which means evolution is a part of the, the set of lies that they feed to their flock. And, and um, I, I believe you grew up uh, Presbyterian, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and are no longer. Um, no, I, I was drifting out of that by the time I was in high school. But till I got off to college, I didn't have the choice of not going to church. So I see. Do, do you because clearly this um, when we talk about skepticism and uh, the scientific method, clearly this is something that uh, you're, you're it's not just you believe in. You're very passionate and adamant about it. Um, do you feel like, um, you know, n- not to imply that, oh, you you were had a religion uh, upbringing and then you were wounded by that and tried to react. Like, do, is there any like explanation that you've mined for in like in your past to explain why you've arrived at this? Yeah. I was one of those kids who got hooked on dinosaurs at age four and never grew up. Yeah. So I was, but, but in my generation, I was the only kid I ever knew that liked dinosaurs. Now every kid of a certain age likes them. Yeah. But in the fifties and sixties, when I was a kid, that wasn't a very common thing. And I was always considered a sort of a freak because I did know all those names of dinosaurs. Now most kids can name the same dinosaurs I could at that age. But in any case, you know, by the time I gotten into high school age, I not only knew a lot about dinosaurs, I'd read a bunch of books about evolution in the connection with that. And so I'd become very used to the scientific method about how evolution works. And so I was, you know, no longer could accept the fairy tales I was being taught in Sunday school very well. And, you know, I began to become real cynical of the whole process because once you became sort of evidence-based and start thinking scientifically, and then you start hearing uh, stories of ridiculous things like Jonah in the belly of the whale or Noah's flood or the rest, he realized that makes no sense at all. Now, my kids didn't even require that. You know, for age four, they thought the idea of Noah's flood was ridiculous. They could tell it couldn't happen any more than Santa Claus could travel all around the world in one night. And uh, so I, I probably was more less cynical than they are. But in any case, you know, by the time I got to college, it was clear to me that was not the case. And, and the actual fact of the matter was I made a serious effort to study it and understand religion, uh, not just the one I was raised in, but in all religions. So I took a lot of comparative religion classes, read widely on the philosophy and history and comparative religion. I took, learned Hebrew in high school and then Greek in college so I can read the Bible in its original text. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing it'll completely disabuse you of the notion the Bible is, is sacred or, or revealed by God, it's actually reading it in the original. Because you read the original, you'll find out that there's all sorts of mistakes. There's copying errors. There's uh, bad translations. There's all sorts of garbage. Uh, almost every English translation that's out there is bad. And then you, of course, spend, spend a little time studying the history of the, uh, the scriptures. They, of course, are none of them written in the time of Jesus or his apostles or any of the people who claim to be the authors. They're all written much later, usually in the case of the Old Testament, by certain priestly groups that were trying to push a political agenda. And in the case of the New Testament, by people who are a century after Christ and its apostles, no direct eyewitnesses wrote any of the Bible in the New Testament. And they were all copied and recopied and recopied. So we know from variations on these things that there's giant amounts of discrepancies between these. 
Then the Council of Nicaea in about 300 AD just arbitrarily decided which books of the New Testament will be kept and which ones will be thrown out, uh, which the Catholics accept some and the Protestants accept different ones. That's just to show you there is no such thing as a holy scripture. It's a bunch of human-made works that don't even have good translations out there. And if you read them in the original, you learn this really quickly. Well, what about uh, just, you know, to play devil's advocate here, uh, the, the Quran uh, people say that you can only read, you, you've only truly read the Quran if you read it in the Arabic original. Uh, That's what, great. If you speak or read Arabic, you should do that. Yeah. Uh, but the Quran, of course, is probably doesn't have, because it's a much younger document and doesn't have much uh, history of being revised. I don't know all about Quran scholarship, but I bet it hasn't been revised as much, but it's still basically a revealed document. And of course, as you know, many people in the Muslim world learned it entirely heart, you know, by memory from beginning to end. So, uh, yeah, but it still, you know, has all sorts of mythology in it, which makes no sense scientifically. Uh, I, I'm curious. I, I wanted to ask you something about your your scientific work. Um, I, and I, this is I, I've, I've just read this this term, and I was curious if you could explain it in layman's um, language. Uh, punctuated equilibrium. Uh, I've heard that's something that you are uh, apparently one of the best in the world at understanding. Um, well, it, lots of people understand it. I've just done a bunch or, of or research re that's relevant research, to it. Yes. Me, yes. Um, yeah. What, what, what is that? Okay, so Darwin sort of was committed because he was part of society that was very much anti-revolutionary, and that was because of what happened in Britain in the early 19th century when there were several close calls on revolutions by the lower classes. Uh, Darwin is, of course, a member of the upper class. You know, he was a Cambridge-educated, raised in a rich family, all the rest. Um, he was very much a gradualist, and most and most of the prevailing power structure of Victorian society was. Everything was supposed to gradually transform, no great jumps or changes, and that was part of his culture. That sort of atmosphere gradualism became sort of doctrinaire within thinking of evolution for about a century. And by the time you get to the middle part of the 20th century, Lots of uh, paleontologists had looked at sequences of fossils and said, well, we can see a gradual transition from this to this to this, from bed to bed to bed, and therefore we demonstrate evolution as a gradual transformation. But in the meantime, uh, biologists themselves had a rethinking what evolution, especially what speciation is about, how new species are created. And the work that was done, especially by the famous ornithologist Ernst Meyer, uh, showed that when you look at species, they form mostly in the edge of a population because the main population is interbreeding. It's very hard for rare genes to get established. But if you have a little small population on the edge that's maybe isolated in some way that's not breeding with the main population, you can get rare genes becoming dominant, right? They're, they're Because they're interbreeding with each other and the rare genes will become dominant. And if they do this long enough, eventually when that rare sort of, uh, you know, peripheral population reunites the main population, their rare genes have become dominant, they no longer interbreed with the main population. When they do that, they're a new species. That's the definition of uh, species is whether they cannot interbreed or not. Okay. And so that is so-called allopatric speciation model. Speciation forms by isolated populations usually on the edge of the main population, then they reintroduce themselves to the area, predicts a very different thing about the fossil record. Namely, the fossil record shouldn't show over millions of years gradual transformations. The fossil records just show speciation followed by stability, equilibrium, okay, punctuation, and then equilibrium. Or stasis is another way of describing equilibrium. Now, it's once a fossil uh, species appears in the fossil record from wherever it came from, someplace not where your samples come from, then they stay the same. And that, in fact, was something paleontologists had known since the days of early paleontology in the 1790s, that most species, once they show up, they're very stable over millions of years. 
don't change very much until they vanish or speciate or do something else. Okay. And that was one of the, the sort of the standard secrets. The reason we can use fossils to date rocks is because they, they, they are stable for long periods of time. So we can date an interval time they lived in. Anyway, so the result of that was that this idea of allopatric speciation was first published in 1942, but for 30 years, paleontologists never seemed to get the connection between what they were saying in biology and what we were not saying in paleontology until it was young Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge, and Niles Eldridge was one of my professors at Columbia and American Museum, who realized that if you take Myers' model seriously, speciation happens so fast. It happens in a few generations, a few tens of generations, a few centuries at most, Okay, that you can't see it in the fossil record. Fossil record is a record that's very coarse resolution over millions of years, and something happens over a few decades almost never gets fossilized. So you would never see speciation events in the fossil record except in rare instances, and therefore you shouldn't see gradual transformation. You should see speciation as the sudden appearance of a new species wherever your samples come from. And then the other the the, uh, the correlate of that is that once a species appears, it doesn't change very much. It may fluctuate around a mean, but it's more or less stable over long periods of time. Hmm. That, in fact, is what the fossil record looks like all across it. Okay, and when the first debate was first came out in 1972, when the Gould and Eldridge paper was first published 50 years ago next year, we're having a big symposium in honor of it next year, by the way. Um, the, uh, the idea was stunning to the paleontologists who were more senior at that time, because Gould and Eldridge were in their 20s when they published this idea, just out of graduate school. Um, and so they shocked people. And I was there during the 70s as a grad student when the debate was at its hottest. So I remember going to a North American Paleo Convention in 1977 in Lawrence, Kansas, where an entire day-long battle between the two sides was fighting its way out. But bit by bit, it became obvious to paleontologists who weren't previously committed to all the right views of, of the world that, yes, in fact, the fossil record shows this. There's very few or almost no examples of gradual transitions over millions of years because that's to what biology predicts in the first place. It shouldn't show that, okay? And so that has become important insight. And so now next year will be the 50th anniversary. This idea has been widely documented, widely accepted, uh, widely substantiated with almost every study that's ever been done in the last 50 years. And so pretty much everyone goes along with it. And yet it has implications. For example, if species are really stable, even when a climate change occurs, then it tells you something about what we know about species. The species are not as, you know, like a Galapagos finch that they're constantly shifting whenever the droughts occur on certain islands in the Galapagos. Uh, those, that, those models have been fed to biologists since they were you know, beginning classes. Well, that doesn't describe species as we now know them because we know species don't care about that over the long run. They are very stable over short-term changes. Okay, and so they don't, uh, that the, what the kind of stuff you see on the small scale, like fruit flies and lab rats and Galapagos finches probably isn't much relevance to what actually makes speciation happen and stick, which is what the fossil record is telling us. And especially climate changes. I mean, that's one of the areas I've been focused on is the argument that species track climate. Well, my students and I now have uh, measured like 27 different birds and all the large mammals that have decent samples from the ray of tar pits which records the last 40,000 years, including the last ice age cycle. And none of them do a damn thing when the climate gets colder and snowier. They just keep on the exact same size and exact same shape, okay? And then I've done this with groups of animals in the big badlands. The basic the answer is every time you look closely at the fossil record, we have a detailed fossil record of any animal and you have independent evidence of climate across that change. In most cases, there isn't any response from the animals to climate. 
Okay, it's very contradictory to what you've been told, very contradictory to what biologists learn in, in college. And so it's taking a while for a lot of people to digest it and to accept it and to recognize what's going on. So even with 50 years under our belt now next year, the, the, the implications of puncture equilibria are not yet completely appreciated or ac accepted by most biologists, even though the evidence for it is overwhelmingly been accepted. Okay, so it... it just to summarize to see if if, if I, I got this basically yeah. these these mutations um, take place on the fringes of, of a species population right. and then right. when they're reintroduced into the main body right. of the population there's a quick change and then the this new species well, the change is happening with the mutation out in the periphery right? right when the population rejoins the main population it's too genetically different at that point to be able to successfully interbreed. And that's what defines a species according to biology. I see. Right. Genet basically genetic isolation, inability to cross breed successfully. That's what you find a species in nature. If you ask the average biologist, that's the definition they prefer. Okay. So in other words, these, these mutations take place on the fringes and then bam, we have a new species. Right. Then whenever they meet the mainland population, they can't interbreed anymore. They're a new species. Yeah. So I I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but does this sort of like, this this weird nonlinear um, change where you have a suddenly like a flash and everything's different. It does it kind of strike any resemblance to in the the evolution of human society where you have the agricultural revolution where you have this quick change followed by a long period of stability. I guess the industrial revolution followed by a short period of stability where you have yeah. the IT revolution, but. Do you see what I'm saying? Is yeah, this... I know. A lot of people point out that a lot of things have stable patterns and then there's suddenly a change and then they're overdone. You know, those sort of revolution stability, revolution stability. There is a pattern like that. And Gould being a, a good Marxist was obviously favorable to that, uh, but that didn't influence his scientific judgment. Not enough people implied it did, but it didn't. I mean, the evidence is there whether you're Marxist or anything else, right? Um, and then, the, so there are a lot of ideas of people saying, you know, it's it's, st it's stability or stasis, and then there's a rapid change, stasis and rapid change. So a lot of systems do that naturally. And so people made the argument that human societies have that characteristic too, that they do have revolutions of the political kind and revolutions of the technological and social kind. Uh, so yes, you could say there's some parallels there. It's not the same mechanism, of course, because it's culture, not nature. But yeah, there are parallels. Okay, fair enough. Um, something I wanted to ask you earlier um, that I, I just remembered when you talked about uh, being fascinated with dinosaurs as a kid, certainly your conception of what dinosaurs look like has changed vastly since you were a child. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, now, do, did all dinosaurs have feathers? I mean, what, what, what's, how, how is the picture in your mind of dinosaurs changed over that time span? It's changed vastly, mostly because the discoveries are made in the 70s and 80s, what they often call the dinosaur renaissance, when they realized they were much more active and they had different postures. They were not sluggish reptiles that dragged around in swamps. They're active and intelligent and moving around, especially the predators. Uh, and yes, the evidence is pretty clear now that not only did all dinosaurs primitively have feathers, but so did the pterosaurs, which are not dinosaurs, but their next closest relative. There are now good feathers discovered in 2018 from China that show that all pterosaurs are covered with feathers as well. So feathers are a universal feature of the entire dinosaur bird pterosaur clade. And then the, the upshot of that is that when you find dinosaur specimens which don't have that much in the way of feather impressions or other kinds of feathers on their skin impressions, they look more leathery or otherwise. 
it's the same way with a very large bodied animal like an elephant today, right? The elephants technically have a bit of hair in a few places and a few tufts of hair here and there, including the tip of their tail, but they're mostly hairless. It's, and so, yeah, that's a function of large body size. You get really big and huge. You need to dump body heat as fast as you can and hairs gets in the way. But if you're a smaller body size, you're going to have insulation covering all of you. So all the smaller dinosaurs unquestionably were completely feathered, just like the birds that descended from them. And the exceptions would be the very large things that would probably dump most of their body, which had a limited amount of feathers, except maybe when they're young. So big sauropods were probably naked and scaly, but their young ones might have had feathers. Uh, T-Rex has a close relative, a fossil called Uteranus, found in China, which is feathered all the way from head to tail. And it's almost as big as T-Rex. So you should think of T-Rex at least at being mostly covered feathers. Okay, and mm -hmm. certainly Velociraptor, which is not the right name for the dinosaur in Jurassic Park. The Velociraptor is the size of a turkey. The one in Jurassic Park is really based in Deinonychus. But both those animals are clearly feathered. We have good fossils that show that. And in many cases, we have the bumps on their, on their, on their wrists and, then, and down their arm, which is where they call quill knobs, which is where the feathers insert into the arm. And birds have that too. So yes, most dinosaurs are feathered. All pterodactyls are feathered. And the ones that lost it would be the large ones that are trying to get rid of body heat and don't need that much insulation. And, and I was also curious, as someone who's spent a lot of time in the fossil record uh, studying the evolution of life, um, is, is there any, I, I mean, I don't think this question is, is knowable right now, but um, is there any intuitive sense on your part whether or not life is um, sort of like, quote unquote, inevitable uh, byproduct of, of natural laws, or do you think it's incidental to just the nature of physics? Well, I th would argue that it's incidental and probably rare, and there's probably no intelligent life on any other planet yet. If you want to talk about life in the sense of microbial bacteria that live in anoxic settings, that's probably everywhere, okay? Lots of other planets are going to turn out to have those. But most people when you hear them say life on other planets, they think of Martians, they think of aliens that look like humans. That's not going to happen anywhere. And there are several reasons for that. And if you look, first of all, from the biological and paleontological perspective, life has lots of accidents, lots of contingent events that don't make a predictable path. So, uh, for example, there hadn't been a big extinction 66 million years ago and dinosaurs still ruled the planet. We wouldn't be here talking. OK, uh, all sorts of accidents that are not predictable and not even the best adapted animals like the dinosaurs, which are well adapted at that time, were not adapted to the new set of rules. So those accidents mean that if you, and Stephen Jay Gould famously said this again and again, if you were to try to rerun the history of life all the way from the beginning and did it again, you would never get the same result twice because nothing is predictable. Nothing is inevitable because rare accidents change all the rules and then who survives and who comes out is not a predictable consequence either. But as a uh, planetary scientist, I've done a lot of work now in teaching planetary science and atmospheres. Something that people don't appreciate is how rare a planet like Earth is, okay? Not only are we in the Goldilocks zone, the right distance away from our star, so we're neither too hot nor too cold. That's why it's a Goldilocks zone, uh, where you have the right temperature, you have both liquid water and solid water on our surface, as well as gas. If we're too close, right? Everything is boiled. If you're too far away, it's all frozen. We're allowed, we're at that narrow band where the temperatures are right around the normal range of water's physical states. That's the first requirement you have to have. But there's so many other things that a plant has to have to have any kind of life we're familiar with. In other words, yes, anaerobic bacteria that don't like oxygen are co probably common on other planets, but our planet has 20% oxygen, which means those bacteria only live in very specific settings that are really low in oxygen when they used to rule the planet before oxygen came along. 
And to make things that we're familiar with, large animals, requires an oxygenated environment. Okay, which as far as you know, no other planet would have that because to make an oxygenated planet, you have to have life and you have to have plants in particular. And without the evolution of photosynthesis, which is not guaranteed to happen more than once, there would not be oxygen on any other planet. And so far, we have no evidence that any of these many planets have been identified other parts of the universe have oxygen. Uh, many other aspects of it as well. As well. You got to have liquid water, you got to have oxygen. Uh, we are lucky in that we have a moon that stabilizes our orbit. So our temperatures are neither too extreme nor are they too uh, wild in fluctuations compared to most other planets. We have a giant neighbor in the form of Jupiter, which has shielded us from most impacts, except for a handful. Okay, there's a lot of coincidences that have made it so Earth is probably the only place for life as we know it. And, and beyond microbial form, in other words, and, and the, the, that form, whatever exists. So I would say there are no aliens out there listening to our signals. Okay, good. So I can stop panicking? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they won't look like us. That's pretty much guaranteed. That's, that's anthropomorphism in extremes. Yes. Uh, uh, Sci-fi is, of course, confined to using whatever they can, especially in the days when they had to put actors in suits. All aliens look like humans. But that's no, there's no reason to think a priori we'd ever look anything like uh, any alien who should it exist would look anything like us. Uh, I'm curious, and I want to ask you about that notion of rewinding the clock and playing history over again, yep. um, because for um, like, for instance, when I was in uh, undergrad, uh, I was lucky enough to do a little research on a quantum computer, and we learned about entire classes of algorithms that are both non-deterministic and also not random. Um, but for a lot of people, I think the idea of rewinding the clock and playing it over again, why wouldn't the exact same things just happen yet again? Why should there be, you know, a new set of events? Right. Cause anytime a small event that has cascading consequences occurred, everything that follows is different. Right. So the analogy I used before, if not for an event 66 million years ago, which took the dinosaurs out of the dominant position on the planet, uh, mammals would still be small and hiding in the dark and hiding in the crevices, right? For the two thirds of mammalian history is the age of dinosaurs, right? Mammals and dinosaurs originated together in the late Triassic side by side. And mad dinosaurs came to dominate the land and dominate the, the uh, daylight hours because they were bigger and more uh, terrifying. Mammals stayed in the crevices or worked at night. And there was no reason to think they wouldn't still be doing that for the last 66 million years after not, something had not come and taken out the dinosaurs other than the birds. And so this is something that's not predictable, right? There's no way to know that's going to happen. It's not a typical event of uh, everyday things in Earth history and ecology or any other great mass extinction, which are based on really, really unusual events that don't happen, but once every 20 to 100 million years, okay? And there are many other things. I mean, they, you know, they talk about historical contingency, you know, a small a change in fate, you know, like loss of a horseshoe by the king. And for want of a shoe, you know, the battle was lost. For a lot of the battle, the world was lost. These are all accidents. You can't predict what's going to happen. And so, therefore, history is never going to be predictable other than the very broadest terms, right? But here, here would be the counter argument. And I, I don't necessarily agree with this, but let's say you start off from the point of the Big Bang. And you have, in theory, some, you know, somehow you collect all the information uh, that is present in the universe at that moment. You have all the laws of physics um, at, at hand. Wouldn't you, and I feel like a guy like Isaac Newton would say, yes, you would be able to predict an asteroid moving through space because you'd be able to predict all the movements of the different celestial bodies. Like, 
and, and ultimately crashing into the earth. You, right. you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, but so you're dealing with physics, which is much more deterministic, right? As long as the weird things happen, it's following the laws of Newtonian mechanics. But most things biological are not bound by physics alone. There's also stuff going on that's, that's non-deterministic within biological systems, which are complex on a different level, right? Physics is greatly oversimplified compared to biological systems. So that's the problem. Yes, physics is predictable, but the, you know, knowing all those conditions and there's still random events there, like how when, a, you know, say a bunch of asteroids collide with each other, which one is going to end in which way is pretty still much unknowable, no matter how much supercomputer power you have. And the basic thing, though, is that biology itself is not predictable it's not a simple physical system lots of different products can happen from different results right it's our uh, jeff goldblum and uh, and uh, you know butterfly analogy right catastrophe theory that you can have tiny effects that you're, you don't think are predictable and don't think they're consequential but they do in fact have cascading consequences so especially in biological systems they, they don't follow simple physics that's why they're not knowable Fair enough. Um, the, the sort of the last uh, topic I wanted to ask you about is we're moving uh, now to the Anthropocene. Uh, yep. wh why did uh, wh why is this a new era? What, what does this mean? Well, I should preface that by saying not everybody accepts this idea as Anthropocene is a great idea or that's something we should universally put into our textbooks anymore, although I did it in mine. Uh, the idea is to just sort of call attention to the fact that humans are the biggest force on the planet now and have been for quite some time. So how you want to define the Anthropocene, of course, that's another debate altogether. Was it when you know, civilization first arose? Was it when, when the Industrial Revolution occurred and all these uh, big changes happened to the planet? the Industrial Revolution caused. Uh, do you want to time it by a specific event like the, the timing of the Hiroshima blast or something like that? There's a lot of argument about what distinctive event marks the beginning of it. So that's part of the problem. But the bigger issue is that, you know, you're, Anthropocene is making an argument about what is happening to the planet and that the planet now ruled entirely by the effects of humans and how humans have changed the planet. That's a perfectly good point to make. Uh, it wasn't the way in which the rest of timescale was created, however. The rest of timescale was created on basically rock units through time with distinctive events, usually mass extinctions or something like that, that uh, separated one rock unit from the next. And so that's not the way we define time scales in the conventional way. So there's a lot of debate about that as well. But if you are making, making the point, you know, mostly a political and social point about humans transforming the planet, yes, you can use the Anthropocene as a kind of a, uh, a signifier for that. It's just not something geologists really take that seriously. I see, okay. Um but still, we we did start off this conversation talking about um, you know mythological creatures and uh, you know a, a lack right. of scientific literacy. Um, do you think that those kinds of things are sort of uh, like a gateway drug to um, you know more hardcore stuff like climate denial? That's pretty clear, actually, because the, the studies shown now that the, when you have one weird belief, you know, let's say you're you're tied into uh, creationism, you often are tied into that through mostly political networks and conspiracy theories with anti-vaxxing, with uh, climate denial. And it's almost a badge of honor in certain Republican circles to be as deniable of science as they can. Right. They'll embrace everything from creationism, to climate denial, to anti-vax. And then, then, of course, go even crazier with the QAnons and all the rest out there. So that is, a, unfortunately, a major political trend in this country. And a whole segment of the country is sucked into the rabbit hole of conspiracy thinking and denial of any science that the uh, the, the 
the people in their party don't accept because the people in the party who run the party are beholden to powerful interests like uh, coal and oil and things like that, which is where climate denial is fuel fueled by. And of course, religion, which is what fuels evolution denial. Uh, and then bad vaxxers are fused mostly just by fear of medicine, science, period. So um, we have a problem that these are now all tightly connected and particularly a believer in one believes all three and it rejects all three scientific claims simultaneously. I wrote a book about this topic about science denial way back in 2012, 2013, thinking that it was a thing of the past. And of course, I never anticipated what would happen in 2016 with the election of Trump and a whole party, which has gone off the deep end of being anti-science. And the irony of that, of course, is it's not anti-science so much as they don't like science that doesn't tell them what they want to hear. And so that's why the title Inconvenient Truth was so appropriate for Gore's movie. They, they'll accept science and how technology makes their lives better. I mean, they're alive because of medicine technology until such time as something they don't want to believe like anti-vaxxers do. You know, they're, they're, they're not alive. They're alive because medicine, then they reject medicine when it falls in the way of something they want to believe. And the same with evolution and climate change. If, if they're hardcore libertarians that hate the government will do anything, then they're not going to accept climate change because climate change means government regulation in some form. So this is what's behind a lot of it. But the sad part of it is it's now sucked in a significant chunk of the country into a huge you know, realm of the, uh, you know, the alternative universe, you know, the houses looking glass world where they, they uh, discredit science, don't believe science, don't accept science. And normally you could get away with that and not have consequences. But COVID's different. COVID is now mostly killing Republicans and older Republicans, especially thanks to the fact they won't get vaccinated. So there's the ultimate twist. It is dangerous to be anti-science. Well, I'm curious because you do mention the Republican Party, and of course they have a, a strong anti-science component. I, I have hung out with some like hippie left types, though, who have said things, you know, like well, science is an ideology. As well, I know, I know that's out there too. You know, but you don't see any leaders of the other parties, the Democratic Party, in our case being the only other one, embracing anti-science. Okay, they embrace science to medicine as it is. They may have weird beliefs individually or small groups with them may have weird beliefs and that's fine, but the party as a whole isn't committed to an anti-science agenda. But the Republican Party, since the days of Reagan basically, has started on this trend of becoming anti-science and it started with, of course, the fact they were prisoners of big polluters, uh, you know, the big oil, big uh, gas and coal. Uh, those people paid the bills, so they became, you know, the Republicans in 1972 set up the EPA. Right. And Richard Nixon signed the bill, right? It was unanimous in Congress to set up the EPA. Everybody was favoring the planet back in 1972 in the early 70s. But in the Reagan years, the polluters got a hold of the Republican Party and bit by bit, you know, Reagan himself said a lot of anti-environmental messages. They demonized the environmental movement. And nowadays, of course, they do whatever the polluters tell them to do because they're paying the bills. Um, and as we're wrapping up here, um, what, what can we expect um, I mean, of course, as you said earlier, these these events are not uh, entirely predictable. Um, but is there any um, geological era um, or you know any moment in the history of the planet where we had uh, this this much CO two in the atmosphere, or greenhouse gases, and uh, if so, what can we expect? Um, we did the, the planet to look like uh, back in the age of dinosaurs. The later part of the age of dinosaurs, the Cretaceous. We had so much CO2, something like 2,000 parts per million, which right now is about 450 
15. So it's almost uh, 20 or 50 times that. Okay. 2000 parts per million meant that uh, there were no ice on the planet. Uh, oceans had drowned the continents. So if you ever travel to Western Kansas or Western South Dakota, they're covered with uh, marine rocks laid down by seas that were formed by an inner a seaway that ran all the way from the from the Gulf of Mexico to to the Hudson's Bay and completely cut North America in two. And that happened to most continents. They were flooded by shallow seas that covered huge areas once you melted all that ice. Uh, this has happened before. And it, it's not going to happen the same way this time around because a lot has happened in 70 million years and a lot of uh, stuff is going on. But we're going to, you know, we're definitely going to see the lower areas, the first things, everything below, uh, everything less than 100 feet below above sea level is going to disappear into the water in the next century. Most that's most of the world's coastal cities right there. Uh, this is st still a very much, pretty much a certainty now. There's even though the best goals they were trying to pass in the Met Glasgow summit they had just last week, they're not going to manage to keep it under what scientists say was this, the, the last civic threshold to prevent everything from going to hell. So we are not in a situation to change things now unless radical political change occurs, which makes us forced to do things quicker than we were used to doing them and getting off fossil fuels is our number one priority. It's not happening fast enough. And, and is stuff like, uh, you know, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, I, I try to be optimistic about this stuff because there's so much pessimism and I think it, it does deflate people and prevents them from acting. Um, yeah. is, is there, is there something, um, you know, some technological fix that could at least mitigate these problems? There are a number of ideas proposed. Most of them actually cost more than they're worth, so they're not cost-effective, although there's, there may be uh, more cost-effective in the future as these things get more widespread. But the number one way you can prevent the atmosphere going to hell is stop deforestation, which is a big political issue, right? Especially in Brazil, which is run by right-wingers and Nazis. Um, and and want, actual ones, not, not yeah, the one, actual yeah. ones. You know, there are new, regular Nazis in Brazil, too. And Bolsonaro is not one, but he's a right winger who favors the foresty. Um, that would be the biggest thing. Uh, one other thing would be faster than other mechanisms to get CO2 out of the atmosphere would be to fertilize the ocean in key places and have phytoplankton blooms that are gigantic, which when they die off, they take the carbon with them that they made to make their shells and sink to the bottom of the ocean. But you have to do this in very selective places, like in the middle of gyres in the middle of the ocean where there's no upwelling to bring those nutrients back to the surface. But that has been seriously proposed and it's theoretically possible you could do a bit there. Um, one of my foreign professors, Wally Broker, the guy who first coined the term global warming and was one of my professors in the 70s at Columbia, pioneer in many areas of geochemistry, understand the oceans, point out one thing you do as an emergency mechanism is to bounce more energy off into space by increasing what's called the albedo or reflectivity of the poles. So a desperation move, you could sprinkle a lot of aluminum uh, flakes all over the poles and that, that would decrease the amount of energy that's going into them because it bounced most of the sunlight back to space. So that would make them colder and maybe pr promote ice growth but it would also not solve the problem getting CO2 out of the atmosphere. And of course now CO2 is destroying the oceans. And so that's not solving the real problem. But the real reason that nothing's happening is that at the moment there's no economic incentive to do this. It's still power is held by people who mine fossil fuels and nobody wants to stop using fossil fuels at least right away. And the bigger problem is in order to make this happen, you have to invest a lot of money in that. And it's also a sort of a wild gamble because systems are complicated, right? Not as predictable as we like to think they are, as we said earlier. So if you tried, let's say, you know, giant fertilization of the oceans, or if you tried putting reflectors on the poles, it could go just as wrong as it has now. It could go too far the other way. 
so a lot of people are sort of skeptical and reluctant to actually pull the trigger on those ideas. So we're in a bind, bind right now. And unfortunately, we don't have the political leadership, nor do we have the political power to really change things like we should be. Uh, well, listen, Donald, on that note, um, question before we go. If people want to uh, learn more about uh, you know, the kinds of work you're doing, uh, maybe check out some of your books, uh, how can they find you? Oh, I have a site called donaldprothrow.com, which is my full name.com, uh, although I'm updating, updating it pretty shortly. Um, almost all my books that are recent are on Amazon. Some are out of print, so they're not there anymore. Uh, but the ones that I'm, we've talked about are all on, in, on Amazon, so you can find them there. Uh, and then a lot of my stuff is just free online. I mean, I, you search my name on Google and you get a ton of videos and tons of other stuff. So it's not hard to find most of my stuff. All right. Donald, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Great. Thank you to Donald Prothero and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.